One of the hottest areas in research and development today in pharmaceuticals is the microbiome. That's all the different microbes that live in us, on us, and around us. Welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. Today, I'll be joined by Tunisia Moodley and Aaron Mystery from our Cineos Health Consulting group. We'll be talking about the microbiome. Their recent white paper is, Could the Gut Microbiome Revolutionize Medical Care? Current Status and Considerations to Get These Novel Therapeutics Successfully to the Market. Before we get to the interview, I comment on something in the industry. Here's something I noticed about direct-to-consumer television advertising. You know, the ads that show up on Wheel of Fortune or Jeopardy with healthy-looking active patients and more side effects listed than benefits, those ones? Sometimes, television spots drive sales. Sometimes. And sometimes, I've seen the data, television ads actually lower sales. I'm going to talk about one of these, since it's easy to see how the mistake was made and how companies can avoid it. In this ad campaign, it was a two-company market. There was a clear market leader and a distant competitor. And the ad I'm talking about was for that distant competitor. Perfectly fine ad. Visually appealing, good information, large medical need. Ad ended with, ask your doctor. The only problem, in most markets, payers, insurance companies, only had one of the two drugs on formulary. One. Which drug was on formulary? The market leader. The company making the television ad. The company paying for the healthy-looking active actors, high production values, time slot on wheel. That company? That company's product was not the market leader. That was the market follower, the distant competitor. That company's product was excluded by many payers. The payers wouldn't pay for the drug. So imagine a patient sees the ad, likes the ad, goes to the doctor, asks for the drug, and then the doctor tries to prescribe the drug. The insurance company wouldn't pay. They paid for the competitor, though. And that's what got sold. So check the payer exclusion lists before going on TV. If you like what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Microbiome, next on the Cineos Health Podcast. Tunisia, Aaron, welcome to the Cineos Health Podcast. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Jeff. So by the magic of the interweb, I am in Raleigh. Where are you today, Aaron? Um, I'm based in Boston. That's where our offices are here in the U.S. as well as other areas. And Tunisia? We're in central London. We're all talking together across the Atlantic about the microbiome, the small, the small. This is something that could be a very big area, but I have to admit, I don't know a lot about the microbiome other than if I eat the wrong stuff, I feel it. Tell me why the microbiome matters and why a pharma company should care about it at all. Yeah, that's a great question. And I think it's probably a space that people recognize when they hear the name microbiome, but don't really understand a lot of things about it. The microbiome space is one of those that has certainly been up and coming in the last five to six years, even and more so than that. And it's one of those things where the scientists are really looking to understand the bacterial strains within each person's microbiome and identify if there's strains that are linked to certain diseases. They've been able to link some with Alzheimer's, some with cancer, 
there's a big research from many different manufacturers on the gut-brain access from a CNS perspective. So they've been able to create some of these linkages. Obviously, there's a lot of challenges because each person's microbiome may be different than another person's. So trying to nail it down to what are the strains that we know are present with certain things, we're getting there, but there's a lot more that can be discovered with that. In addition to the strains, there's the opportunity to understand what comes first. Is it essentially a bad or dysbiotic is the term in the industry, a dysbiotic microbiome that comes first, or is it a different disease that comes first that affects the microbiome? And so there's this chicken and the egg type of situation that we're seeing. And really the industry has grown. There's many companies that have been able to focus on specific microbiome therapies and have gotten them through clinical stage development. But when you think about the microbiome in general, a lot of people, I think, initially think of the gut microbiome. There's many microbiomes. There's the skin microbiome. There's agriculture when it comes to the microbiome, right? When you think about plant-based seeds and those types of things, there's seeds that are grown and how they can be altered in different ways. And so there's a lot of companies that are investing R&D money into that space. There's the consumer products. So if you think about Avon and L'Oreal, Reckitt Benkheiser is a big one that's invested quite a bit of money into understanding a little bit more about how this affects consumer products in general. There's a lot going on. Tunisia, if you could just help me out, what is a microbiome? That's something that I don't have a very clear idea on. I know that we have about, I don't know, 20 trillion, 30 trillion cells in our body total for everything. Is the microbiome two cells? Tell me what the microbiome is, why it matters, just straight up. I don't know what it is. Okay, so the microbiome refers specifically to the ecosystem of bacteria that exists in your gut. There's a lot. There's about 10 trillion bacterial cells in the whole human body, and most of that is actually in the gut. It's actually called the second brain or the second genome because of the importance in human health and how much it impacts different functions in your body and different diseases. But as Erin said, it's difficult to tell at the moment whether dysbiosis occurs first or whether the disease occurs first. Everything in your body is centered around also nutrition and microbiome plays a key role in nutrition. So also very closely related to disease in that way. Also, when you metabolize drugs, it goes straight to your gut and your liver. And there's theory that the therapeutic benefits of some drugs might also be through the microbiome. And how is this different from just nutraceuticals and probiotics where we're introducing some good bacteria into the gut? So I hear it's big, 10 trillion cells, you said, versus 20 trillion in the entire body or 30 trillion, maybe. So this is a lot of us that isn't us, but is really important. But what do we do with that? Does that mean that it's just something we have to be aware of? Or is it something that we actively influence? What does this mean for pharma? Yeah, it's a great question, Jeff. I think when you think about prebiotics and probiotics, for example, the way that they're used or are currently being used, it's almost first generation and second generation, right? There's this kind of blanket, one-size-fits-all type of product that can be used to alter the gut in various ways. But when you think about it from a microbiome therapy perspective, there's essentially three different ways that the microbiome therapies can be used. And one of those is, in addition to your current gut microbiome, can we identify what you're lacking? And can we help alter that by infiltrating the good bacteria that we know that you're missing? Alternatively to that, can we remove bacteria that you might be 
having too much of or the bad bacteria that we've identified in your body. There's kind of the removal type of way. And then there's really just the augmentation. So can we think about ways that we can alter the bacteria in your gut to react a different way to a therapy? So there's likely three, but as we know right now, but could be many more different ways to change the microbiome of an individual, right? Now, I'm speaking technically about the gut right now, the gut microbiome. That's where most of the studies have taken place. And so there's a little bit more known about that area. To add to that, Erin, it's important to distinguish between nutraceuticals and something that's actually therapeutic because nutraceuticals are quite general and microbiome therapies would be quite targeted and actually used to treat a disease specifically. And just to that point, I think the disease question is a big one. This is something that many companies are challenged with is this dysbiosis. It's a recognized term within the physician community, but it's not recognized from a disease perspective. So if you bring a microbiome product to the market and it's treating a dysbiotic if the disease is anything related to dysbiosis or dysbiotic gut, that disease is not recognized. And so there's a lot of things happening from a regulatory perspective. And this gets into a little bit more of some of the commercialization challenges that microbiome companies are having is how do you get this disease recognized? What are the steps to do so? Many companies are having conversations with the FDA, both in groups and one-off, to understand how can we move this process forward. Some companies, they're not interested in making dysbiosis be a disease. So you've got competing interests amongst the different groups within the microbiome community, but that's something that is consistently being talked about and identified as an area to focus on. It seems very complicated, and it also seems fairly early. If I'm a company that's in phase three, I'm probably not concerned about the microbiome, even if I'm in one of these areas where it might be really important, like GI or skin, where the microbiome just sits there and is obviously interacting with things. And it seems really important, not farther down the line where it might be like the brain, where yes, there might be a connection, but it's not as immediate. How early do I need to be in development that I really do have to care about it? Or am I just wrong that if I'm in phase three, I do have to care about it like right now? It's a good question also, because one of the challenges in the microbiome is understanding what the standards are. What are acceptable endpoints in a trial to those companies that are in phase three have had conversations with FDA of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable. But I think the industry is evolving and it will continue to evolve and We work with the NIST and the FDA to help evolve the current GMP standards, even from a manufacturing perspective, to reflect the technological advances in the microbiome space. Those conversations are continuing to be had. There's a lot of unknowns. So there's many regulatory hurdles that are being overcome as we speak and will continue to be challenging for the space. But there's individuals that are leading that charge and groups of folks that are really interested in doing this. That's interesting. I'm looking back in history and saying, well, 1975, first monoclonal antibody. 1986, I think, was the first approval of a monoclonal antibody therapy. So 10 years from being benched to bedside in a real way for a truly fundamental technology that then in the next 25 years just revolutionized how we treat medicine. Is this where we see that we are? We're 10 years away from being the first changes and 20 years from being everything changes? Or do we see something accelerated, less accelerated? I I know that's a crystal ball kind of question, but you've looked at it. What do you think? I think in general, I don't know if you're familiar with the Gartner curve, there's a technology trigger that kind of starts 
the discussion, right? You go upwards and you have a peak of inflated expectations and then there's a big drop into this trough of disillusionment and then it plateaus into productivity. So a lot of industries as they start out go through that process of this Gartner curve. So if we think of cell and gene therapies, I'm going to throw a number out there, but 10 to 12 years ago, they were really new. And over the last 10 to 12 years, there's been peaks and valleys and troughs and all of those things. And now we're in more of this plateau phase of this is happening. And there's many companies that are evolved significantly in this space and bringing products to market. So the microbiome is really on the upward swing of that Gartner curve right now. There's a lot of things going on with it, just like the AI space as well, but has significantly increased. A lot of larger companies are sinking many, many millions of dollars into R&D. They're partnering with smaller organizations. They've realized there's a lot of linkages that have been identified from a scientific perspective. So the growth in the space has exponentially increased over the last five years, and it's just going to take a bit of time, and there's a regulatory considerations that need to be ironed out before these products are in full swing. Tunisia, did you have a follow-up on that one? I did, Jeff. To your question of, is it going to be at least 10 years or more before we see anything on the market? I think for companies that are developing therapeutics that are actually live biotherapeutics to be ingested, or even derivatives of molecules from the microbiome, it could be that long. But there may be things that might come to market sooner. For example, we have BMF who has been working with Enterome to look at the development of microbiome-derived biomarkers as potential companion diagnostics in cancer therapies. And I think with the data that's available on the therapeutic effect of PD-1 inhibitors potentially being mediated by the gut microbiome and the interest in the space, I'm not sure that it might actually take 10 years, potentially sooner for developing biomarkers rather than the therapeutics. I see that in your paper, you talked about the various approaches being tested for at one end metabolites, where we're looking at very, very small things and very exquisitely tiny things. And at the other end, you refer this to bacterial ecosystems. If I'm thinking through this, I do know some companies that I've seen in the M&A space that include, and this is going to sound gross because it is kind of, that sell freeze-dried feces. That's the product in development with the idea being that if you take something from a healthy person or what is exciting to me, a skinny person, and take their gut flora and give it to me, maybe this will be a panacea for me for whatever ails me from prediabetes to lose an extra 30, 40 pounds. How do we see this scope of what could be there really playing out for our clients, how they think about it? That's a big question. Yeah, it is a big question, Jeff, and I'm not sure we have the answers to all of those. But frozen stool, for example, is a great example of what's going on in the market today, right? I think it's used in some cases as a last resort for folks that have C. difficile, which is Clostridium difficile. It's a bacterial infection and can be deadly, actually. I think that one of the recent studies that have come out is around 28 to 30,000 deaths per year just in the U.S., from that bacterial infection. And it's also recently become a hospital quality initiative. And in 2017, has officially been put on as this is something that needs to be watched from a CMS perspective. They call it FMT. So FMT stands for fecal microbiota transplant. And this is exactly what you're talking about is if you're taking somebody else's, whether that's donor-derived or it can be close family members or it can be from a donor situation or it can be fermented products, So these synthetic products that are also being studied in development currently essentially comes down to two things, human-derived or synthetic materials. 
And the ones that have been the furthest along in development are the human-derived therapies. How do you actually regulate that? Where are the samples coming from? What types of samples are they? Do they have specific qualities about them? And are they the same, right? Because they're getting it from all different types of people. So how do you manufacture those? How do you do all of those things? And that's the things that I think we mentioned before that are very difficult in the space to nail down. But that's what's happening. And they're transitioning them into they can be delivered through freeze-dried pills over a course of time. And essentially, you're replacing someone's microbiome with another person. And they've seen success with that. But it's not a regulated component right now. And that's the challenge. But there's other ways that can be done, whether you go through a synthetic route or other ways that we can do donor-derived, that companies are doing donor-derived products are all being studied at the moment. It's a unique category. FMT is essentially an investigational drug. I don't know if it has an IND. I think it's without an IND currently. What's at the other end? How exquisite can the science get? I think if you look at where the space could go over a course of time, I think it could get down to pretty personalized medicine. It can identify if you have a stool sample that you provide, it can be studied and maybe not to the most granular level, but at some broad category to say, listen, Jeff, you've got these types of things in your microbiome. You are susceptible to X, Y, and Z. We can actually assist that with a product that can go together with your microbiome, or we can have a product that removes some of the bad things in your microbiome. And it becomes more of a preventative type of therapy to some degree. If you think about nursing home facilities where C. diff is pretty common, and it's very contagious. And one of the thoughts is, does everybody that goes into a nursing home facility receive a preventable microbiome therapeutic for C. diff? There's options like that out there. So maybe it's a vaccine. Maybe things turn into something like that. I think the market can be pretty broad for this, and the use can be both preventative and for treatment. One of the other things that really struck me within the paper was the idea that large players are really looking to add this capability on through R&D. They're looking to niche companies to bring in. It's not one where they have built it necessarily in-house, and they're looking to pick the winners now that winners are kind of emerging this reminds me of the monoclonal antibodies, to be honest, a very similar situation. Is that how you see that playing out or even like recent immuno-oncology plays where it was outside of certain houses and then came into certain houses as an in-licensing effort and M&A? Yes, Jeff. I think a lot of the large companies, it's not even on their radar at the moment, except for a few of the companies, I think, which are early on in the game. If you look at large companies like Nestle, who are working very closely with serious therapeutics or Avvi, who are working with Synlogic, as well as other smaller companies, there you have some partnering. But actually, if you look at companies like J&J is one of the few companies that have built their own unit entirely dedicated to microbiome drug discovery. So I think larger companies are starting to become more aware and typically partnering with smaller biotechs. But there are one or two that are really ahead of the game and building their own units and also partnering with several biotechs at the same time. For example, Takeda seems to have invested quite heavily, partnering with Finch and New Biota, which are quite well known in the space. Final question. Does it really feel to you, as you've looked over this field, that the race is on, that people are really starting to put the pedal to the metal and someone is going to be a winner and someone is going to be a loser? Yeah, I think there is essentially a race to develop these new therapies. So whole new classes of therapies are exploding from results of disturbing essentially the gut microbes. And the surface is just being scratched. 
For example, synthetic treatments can make organisms that can make specific changes to the gut environment. And then you've got your human-derived ones that are currently in flux. So I think we're learning new things every day. I think a study just came out this week. 100 new bacteria were just discovered in the gut. So I think we're learning so much and there's a race to get a product to market despite the commercialization challenges that they're facing. Tanisha, you get the final word, race or not. Aaron says it's a race and the race is on. What do you see? I agree with Aaron, Jeff. There's a couple of companies, only a couple, which have phase three trials on at the moment. Uh, Ceres and Rebiotics are further ahead than any of the other companies. But there's also a fair number of companies with compounds in phase two and phase one development and an incredible amount of preclinical research ongoing. For the first few that actually get to the market, they will obviously get to shape this market. It's a brand new class of therapies, nothing like it exists. They have a lot cut out for them in terms of how they educate the market because of people having to ingest live microbes. Not sure how well patient acceptance would be in this area as well as physician willingness to prescribe. So I think one of the things that would be key for commercialization is actually starting the market awareness and education really, really early on in order to ensure this area is actually commercially successful. Tunisia Moodley, Aaron Mystery, thanks so much for being on the Cineos Health Podcast. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the time. Thanks, Jeff. Tunisia and Aaron's recent work is Could the Gut Microbiome Revolutionize Medical Care? Current Status and Considerations to Get These Novel Therapeutics Successfully to the Market. You can download a copy of this article in the link that we have on the show notes. That's all for today's episode of the Cineos Health Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Stewart from Cineos Health Consulting. If you like what you hear, please rate and review us on iTunes and Stitcher. If you have comments, suggestions, questions, or if you just want to talk through a particular challenge that you're having at your life sciences company, you may email me at podcast at Where consultants, that's what we do.